Better remind you perhaps of the point at which we've arrived. We've started by taking a general view of what happens when a man is in a church in a pulpit preaching and people are listening to him. It seems to me to be essential, we should, obviously, if we are not clear about that, it's going to have a, a very bad influence and effect upon this detailed, practical section with which we are now dealing. However, we've started on this, and uh, I suggested last time that the first and the most important thing of all is the preparation of the preacher himself. He's always got to prepare himself before he even begins to think about preparing his sermon. I cannot emphasize that too much. It is all important. Experience teaches this, I think, more than anything else in the ministry. But having done that, and obviously we've done it inadequately, no man can do this properly, no man can even describe it properly, leave alone put it into practice, but we must be aware of it and go on struggling with this for the rest of our lives. Having done that, we come now then to the matter of the preparation of the sermon. Now, let me make this clear, that I am dealing in these lectures with preaching. Someone has asked, what about visiting? Well, of course, but uh, I'm not here to deal with the whole work of the minister. I'm here to deal with preaching, because I believe this is first and most important. And no visiting or anything else will compensate for this. Indeed, I would suggest that uh, your visiting won't have much meaning unless your preaching has been what it should be. You'll be just going around and having a cup of tea with people and a pleasant talk. And that's not visiting. Uh, you prepare the way for everything by preaching. As I've shown you, it prepares the way for personal work, and so it prepares the way for visiting. So I, I, I'm not going to deal with the question of visiting. Indeed, you may have noticed that I have not even uh, dealt with the question of pulpit prayers or praying in public. That obviously is not because I don't believe in that. It's because uh, time alone makes me confine myself to this matter of preaching. But pulpit praying is most important. The conduct of the service as a whole is most important. But again, I suggest to you that this will be very largely determined by preaching, by your preaching, by your approach to this. Of course, if you happen to belong to a church that has a liturgical service, this uh, doesn't uh, follow. Although I would have thought that even there, the way the man reads the liturgy will depend very largely upon what he's been doing in his preparation for his sermon. There are many ways even of reading a liturgy. Uh, and if the man has prepared himself and his sermon as he should have done, it will even affect and influence that. But I say, I'm not here to deal with all these various other aspects. I'm here to emphasize what I regard as the chiefest thing of all, which is preaching. I can't go on emphasizing this uh, too much. Everything else comes out of this. This controls everything and determines the character of everything else. Very well. We now then come to the preparation of the sermon. And here you are confronted at once by a major decision. And this is, of course, uh, what I indicated in looking at the thing in general, the type of sermon. What are you going to do? Is it to be evangelistic? Is it to be for the edification and the comfort, the building up of your believers, the members of the church? Or is it to be more general instruction in the teaching of the scripture? This is a major matter, of course, and having referred to it before, I only repeat it now because clearly it, it, it's, it's an issue that arises at once at this point in your preparation. What are you aiming to do? What are you setting out to do? But then having decided which of these this particular sermon uh, is going to deal with, you then come to this very practical question as to how you are going to prepare the sermon. Here I would start by saying that there are no absolute rules. Uh, 
some people seem to think that there are, but I, I suggest to you that there are no absolute rules. I therefore merely put forward some tentative suggestions based on my own understanding and my own experience of these matters. On the whole, therefore, on the whole, therefore, I would say this. Don't uh, preach on subjects as such. Now, what I mean by that is this. I remember a man telling me of his being in a certain situation. Actually, he was a countryman of yours in Great Britain during the war and was stationed in a certain part of the country and he diagnosed the condition of the local church where he was attending and then uh, he asked, they asked him to preach and he said in view of what I'd seen I decided to give them my sermon on justification by faith uh, and then I put a few questions to him and it was clear that having finished his course I needn't mention at which seminary uh, this man had obviously prepared a sermon on these different subjects He'd got a sermon on justification, he'd got a sermon on sanctification. In other words, he'd started with the subject, and then had found, looked for a text, and, uh, but what he was really doing was to give a lecture on justification by faith. That's what I mean here by not preaching on subjects. And I venture to go a step further and expose myself to some criticism by doing so, by saying that on the whole I do not believe in preaching through a catechism. There are those who do this as you know. I suggest that this is not a wise procedure for this main reason, that it tends to produce a theoretical attitude to the truth, uh, an over-intellectual attitude to the truth. It isn't that I don't believe in teaching people the catechism, I do. But I think this should be done uh, at another time and in a different way, under perhaps that heading of instruction which I gave you, or perhaps even of lectures on this. But still better, it seems to me, is that uh, you tell your people to read the Catechism for themselves and to study it for themselves. Um, I'm saying all this because I believe, as I've been indicating, that in preaching, the message should always arise out of the scriptures directly, and not out of the formulations of men, even the best men. After all, these catechisms and so on have been produced by men, and uh, they were concerned uh, with emphasizing certain things very often in their historical situation over against certain other teachings and attitudes. And at their best, therefore, they tend to be incomplete. They tend to have a particular emphasis, and therefore they tend to leave out certain things. But my final argument against preaching through the Catechism is this, that the same thing can be done by preaching from the scriptures in the sense that I have indicated. For after all, your catechisms have been derived from the scriptures. The function of the catechism, I would have thought ultimately, is not to provide material for preaching. It is to safeguard the correctness of the preaching. And it is to safeguard the particular beliefs of the people as they read their Bibles. That surely is the main functions of creeds and of catechisms. And I feel there is a real danger, therefore, in just preaching constantly, year after year, on the catechism, instead of preaching directly from the word of the scripture itself, and having the scriptures always open before you, and directing people to that, rather than to the understanding of men of that. Of course, what you are preaching is your understanding, I know. But I feel the function of the catechism and so on is to check you and to control you, rather than to be the subject on which you are preaching. Well, uh, having suggested that that is true on the whole, subjects and catechisms, then you come to this great question. If I'm not going to do that, well, now what am I going to do? Shall I preach on odd texts? When I mean by odd texts, I don't mean that the texts are odd, but that, uh, but that uh, they don't uh, belong to a series. 
that uh, you take a particular statement here and another one there, and there is no sequence uh, of necessity in what you are saying. Should it be odd texts or should it be a series of sermons? Now, people have taken very strong views on this again. And it is a very interesting and, a, of course, a very important question. Now, one of the greatest preachers of the last century, if not the greatest of all, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he took a very strong line on this. And uh, he uh, didn't believe in preaching a series of sermons. He, he really opposed this very strongly. He said that there was a, a sense in which it was almost impertinent for a man to decide to preach a series of sermons. He, he felt that your texts should be given to you. You should seek the Lord in this matter, that you don't decide, but that uh, you pray for his guidance and for his leading, and you submit yourself to this, and he will lead you and guide you through the Spirit to particular texts and statements, and that should be the way in which you arrive at your sermon. Now, this was the point of view of Spurgeon, as it has been of many others. I certainly myself was brought up in a tradition in which this was the word. I never heard a, a series of sermons at all, quite literally. Uh, texts were preached on in this sense in which you can almost use the term at random. But then, over and against all that, you have the position of the Puritans who are great believers in preaching a series of sermons in various ways. And this interesting thing is, of course, that Spurgeon was such a great follower and a great reader of the Puritans. And yet at this point he disagreed with them entirely. Well, now, what does one say about this? Well, all I can say is that it seems to me to be quite wrong to be rigid in this matter and to lay down any hard and fast rule. I cannot see but that uh, the spirit uh, can control the men in the matter of leading him to a series as well as leading him to one text. Why not? What is important, I think, and here I'm with Spurgeon wholeheartedly, we must pre preserve the freedom of the spirit. Uh, we must not be in control in this matter. We mustn't decide in cold blood, as it were, as to what we're going to do and map out a program and so on. Uh, I'm sure that is wrong. I've known men who've done that. I've known men who at the beginning of a season after a vacation or something would actually hand out a list of uh, their texts uh, for many months ahead and would indicate what was going to be preached every particular Sunday during this time. I, I must say I would reprobate that entirely and completely. I'm not saying that, uh, again, this is impossible under the freedom of the spirit. It, it's not impossible because uh, the wind bloweth where it listeth and we can't uh, say that the spirit will always and must always work in one particular way. But speaking generally, I feel this is surely uh, to, to put certain limits upon the sovereignty uh, and the leading of the spirit in this matter. So having asserted that we are subject to the spirit and honestly careful that we are really subject to him. I argue that he would may lead us at one time to preach uh, on odd texts and at another time to preach a series of sermons. I would humbly claim that I've known this very experience. There's a little book of mine selling in this country at the moment on spiritual depression. For what it's worth, I could tell you exactly how I came to preach that series of sermons. Uh, I was, I had actually determined, at least it seemed to me that I was being led in that way, but undoubtedly it was my own determination to start a series of sermons on the epistle to the Ephesians. But I remember getting up one morning and while dressing, suddenly, in a very overwhelming manner, it seemed to me that uh, the Spirit of God was urging me to preach a series of sermons on spiritual depression, and literally, while I was dressing, the series took order, and all I had to do was to rush as quickly as possible to put them down on paper. 
so that I should remember the order in which they'd come to me in that way. Now, I had never thought about preaching a series of sermons on spiritual depression. Never occurred to me to do so. But like that, it just came. Well, I always pay great attention to a thing like that. This is uh, it's a very wonderful and a very glorious experience apart from anything else. But I would not dare disobey what I would regard as a very definite injunction in that manner. And I am quite confident that that series of sermons was dictated to me. The fact that I should preach the series was dictated to me by the Spirit himself. But let me say this, to justify this attitude that I'm taking of avoiding an over-rigidity in this matter. I'm suggesting, you see, you can do both. And in any case, a series can always be broken into. And a series should be broken into if you feel this peculiar injunction or, or call coming upon your spirit. You see, that's why I would never dream of printing a program of what I was going to preach for the next three months even. You can't tell. At least I, I could never tell. Uh, for I could really never give a guarantee that, uh, that I would uh, finish the sermon I'd prepared on one occasion. Many and many a time I found myself with the time having gone and I'd only preached half my sermon. How can you tell? You're not in control. The Spirit is using you and dealing with you as you're preaching quite as much as he was in your preparation. Don't misunderstand this. I don't believe in slovenliness. I've gone out of my way, I think, to emphasize the opposite. But still, with all your preparation and ordering, you've got to maintain the freedom of the Spirit. And that has so often happened to me. So my printed program would have been ridiculous. I'd have been breaking into it and the whole thing would have been wrong. So I'm saying now, break into your program, uh, your series, if something or another, special circumstances or conditions arise which you feel compelled to make you preach an odd sermon in the midst of your series. Or, let me put it, I, this I would lay down as a rule. There are, special, there are special occasions which always should be observed. And here I venture to express a criticism of the Puritans. Uh, I believe in preaching uh, a special sermon on Christmas Day and during the Advent season. I believe in preaching special sermon on Good Friday, Easter Sunday, Whit Sunday. Now, why do I do this? Well, why did the well, Puritans object to this? Let's try it like that. The Puritans, of course, objected to this because of their violent reaction to Roman Catholicism. The Roman Catholics had turned Christmas into a mass. And as you know, we're all creatures of reactions and we tend to react too violently. And in order to get rid of this whole notion of the mass and everything associated with Roman Catholic thinking, they went to the other extreme and said you shouldn't observe these days at all. Now, I think this is a great mistake, and I'll tell you why. Our danger, all of us, and perhaps some of us in particular, is uh, to become so interested and concerned in the implications and the outworking of the Christian faith that we tend to forget what the faith is. We tend to forget the very foundations of the faith. We assume them, but perhaps never preach them. And if we do that, of course, the same will be true of the people who listen to us. And as you notice in the New Testament itself, in the epistles in particular, the apostles can't deal with any subject without constantly coming back to these basic facts of the Christian faith. And in any case, there you've got your four Gospels, reminding you of facts and historicity. I feel the great danger today, and especially perhaps in certain circles more than others, is over-intellectualization. Half my life I've been trying to persuade people to become more intellectual, and to be less sentimental, and uh, so on. But uh, I feel now the time has arrived when some people at least have to be told to beware of the danger of being over-intellectual and losing contact with the great historic facts on which our faith is based. 
And if you don't respond to a sermon on the nativity again, you'd better examine your whole position in Christ. If you still can't be moved by a sermon which really just deals with the facts and the details of the death of our blessed Lord on the cross on Calvary's hill, if you don't feel as if you'd never heard it before, and if you're not as moved as much by it this time as you ever have been, I say again, examine your own foundations. And the same is true of the people. So these special occasions have great value in this respect, that they, in a sense, compel us to go back and to remind ourselves of these things, which are, after all, the fundamentals of our whole position. But I go further, even. I believe in using almost any special occasion as an opportunity for preaching the gospel. So in addition to the ones I've mentioned, I've always taken advantage of the first Sunday of a new year. Always. Now, why have I done this? You say, what's the difference between the 1st of January and the 31st of December? Of course, in a sense, you're right. That's the purely intellectual attitude, isn't it? <laughs> but you see, all days are the same. All right. But you know, to the common people, there is a difference. New Year, and they take their resolutions. Oh, we, of course, we know it's nonsense. Leads to nothing. They do it every year. They probably don't remember it all for a week. But, but nevertheless, they do it. But you say, what's the point then of paying any attention to that? I know, that's, that's the theoretical view, isn't it? But you see, we mustn't take these theoretical views. As I've been trying to show you, we've got to assess our congregations and our people, and we've got to deal with them as human beings. So, as he who winneth souls is wise, we've got to take advantage of anything and everything to bring home the truth of the gospel to people. So when you start a new year, it's an obvious opportunity of reminding people of the fleeting nature and character of life. We all tend to forget this. And if you're interested in these great theological and intellectual and philosophical problems, you tend to forget that you're going to die. And the people forget it too, immersed in business and pleasure and in the family and so on and so forth. Well, now here is an opportunity made for you to bring home to them the fleeting character of life in this world and that they can't afford to sit back as spectators or critics of preachers and preaching, that they're involved in all this and that you're not addressing them on some theoretical subject, but that you're really dealing with the most vital thing of all and that whether they like it or not, they are moving on and it is... 1969 rather than 68 and on and on it goes and the judgment is coming. The man who doesn't take advantage of these things is in a sense a fool. He's not fit to be in a pulpit. The things are made for him, so take advantage of them. I never forget my sense of disappointment a few years back when needing a bit of a rest. I took a rest uh, at the change of a, a year and went to a, a service of a young minister on a Sunday morning. And there he got up and said, well, you remember that last Sunday we were dealing with so-and-so, so this Sunday we go on to the next verse, and made no reference whatsoever to the new year, or to any of these matters at all. I, I felt sorry for him. I mean, for his own sake. You see, this, these are the things that incidentally help to make our work easier. Here are opportunities made for you. And so I would even expand that a little bit in putting it like this. Anything that happens in the world, anything striking, any phenomenon, is something we should always take advantage of. I remember reading very well in the life of John Fletcher of Maidley, that great and saintly man of 200 years ago. He was preaching there in Maidley in Staffordshire in England, and there was a terrible disaster on the River Severn. The Severn Boar was bigger than usual, and large numbers of people were drowned as the result of the flood. And he preached a remarkable sermon on this, which led to tremendous consequences. I remember reading at the same time, just about the same time, incidentally, how a number of those great preachers of that 18th century made use of the, of the earthquake that took place in Lisbon in 1751. They all took advantage of this to preach. They were not preaching on the earthquake, 
but they were preaching again on the fleeting nature and character of life. You see, an earthquake makes people think, doesn't it? Or a tornado, or something like that. It, 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 it gives you an opportunity. While my heart is tender, you see, says the king in the Old Testament, and the hymn puts it, Saviour, while my heart is tender, I would give my heart to thee. There are times when our hearts are tender. We are, we are more likely to respond. Now, it surely is the essence of wisdom, it's common sense, that we should take advantage of all these things. And though you may have planned out the greatest, the most wonderful series of sermons the world has ever known, break into it if there's an earthquake. <laughs> all right. Well, I'll... I'll uh, I leave it like that. If you can't be shaken by an earthquake, you're hopeless. <laughs> Very well. Now, there are my general remarks about this big question of our texts and series. Coming then to the question of preaching on odd texts. What have we got to say about this? Well, I think I've told you something about this already. When I was dealing with the preparation of the preacher, you remember how I told you when you were reading your scriptures, not to read for texts. Don't read searching for texts, but read for your own good and your own edification and so on. And I told you how in doing that, things would hit you and strike you. And I told you what to do about it. Now, the man who preaches odd te an odd text rather than serious will never be short of texts in that way. He will have accumulated his pile of uh, skeletons, as I put it, which he's prepared uh, in reading in his scriptures in this devotional manner and for his own edification. But, in addition to that, you will find, and have found undoubtedly, that uh, sermons, as it were, are given to you. They come to you directly, and you have very little to do about them. I don't know whether all would agree with me in this, but uh, my own experience certainly was that this happened to me more frequently in the early years of my ministry than has been the case since. I think this is entirely due to the kindness of God. He knows us, he knows our frame, and he knows that we need this kind of help much more at the beginning. As you give uh, gifts to your children and do things for them which you don't do later because you want them to grow up, so God, I think, deals with the preacher. And you will find that he will be kind to you and very gracious to you at the beginning and will give you texts and sermons. Sometimes perhaps a complete sermon will come to you. But then, yet other times you'll find you've got to work it out and you've got to labor and sweat in the way that I have indicated, indicated to you. All right, I leave the question of the odd texts just like that. Then coming to the series of sermons, a series of sermons. There are several possibilities here. One is that you work through a book of the Bible, just go systematically through the book. Another is, of course, that you work systematically through a section of a book. Sermon on the Mount, three chapters, or something like that. Or perhaps even a portion of a chapter. There are great variations in this respect. You can do it in the way that I've indicated, where you have a series of sermons dealing with a particular aspect of the Christian life and living. I've given you this example of spiritual depression. Now, let me, let me just say a little bit, let me elaborate that just a little. This is how that particular thing occurred to me. It was a combination of some of these things I've been saying. I've told you how you must accumulate these skeletons. And uh, I'd been doing this for a number of years, and I'd got my pile of skeletons. And what happened to me on this occasion when I was dressing was that I was shown that in my pile of skeletons there was a series on spiritual depression. Not that the whole pile dealt with this, but that in the pile there were these odd sermons that formed a series. And uh, 
this was to me such a remarkable thing that I've never forgotten it and never shall. And I was more or less there and then, if I remember rightly, able to put down on paper some 21 of them. I'd got the skeletons there. And all that seemed to happen at that moment was that the spirit put them into order for me. So all I had to do was to go to my pile of skeletons and pull these out and look at them. And uh, it seemed to me that this suggested arrangement uh, was a perfect one. Uh, and I dare not uh, touch it. Uh, I added one or two, if I remember rightly, at the end. But I'd even got the skeletons of those. Now, this, you see, I say once more, is not only a right thing to do, but it greatly eases the burden and the labor of the minister. Uh, it, it avoids that terrible condition which I've so known men to be in so often, frantically looking for texts on Saturday. And so your Sunday coming. I've known men even go to bed on Sunday night uh, and, and not be clear about this. Well, now, if you do what I'm suggesting to you, you will find that it'll work out in a most interesting and indeed even an exciting manner. But, and this is what I'm trying to say, em emphasize, doing all this you must always be expository. Always expository. You see, uh, and if you follow the method I've been indicating, you will be, because what you've been doing is, as these texts have hit you, you've stopped and you've looked at them and you've examined them and you've worked out your skeletons. In other words, you're expanding them. It is expository. In other words, don't sort of take a subject like spiritual depression and then sort of think it out for yourself and then look for texts which will be a convenient peg under which to hang these thoughts of yours on the subject of spiritual depression. That's the thing I'm opposing. I say it should always be coming out of the scriptures. It should always be expository. And if you are true to the scriptures, you will find that you will cover all the different aspects and in a very much better way than trying to do it for yourself with your own theoretical approach. Very well, those are the main types of uh, series, it seems to me. Well, now, a series, you see, can be long or it can be short. What about this? I remember very well, it must be getting on for 30 years now, being in the Theological Students' Conference, and we had a great discussion on this as to the length of a series of sermons. And I remember then taking up the cudgels uh, for short series. How a man lives to undo and unsay what he said at a previous time. However, that was my position then, and I want to justify this. You can't lay down these rules and regulations. And uh, this is where I think we've got to be judicious in our use of the Puritans and people like that. I think I may have referred to this already. The danger is, you see, that we go and read them and we say, this is marvelous. This is the way to do it. But if you try it, you may find it isn't the way to do it. Why not? Well, you see, it depends so much upon the preacher. What one man can do, another man cannot do. And it's uh, dangerous for him to attempt to do so. It not only depends upon the particular person of the preacher, it depends upon his stage of development. And a man should be always growing and advancing and developing. And what he cannot do in his younger days, he should be able to do in his middle age and in his old age. So, you see, avoid rigidity in all these things. I remember uh, hearing of a, a man who was a very able man indeed, and uh, a fine theologian, but uh, before becoming principal of a theological college, he had been a pastor of a church. And he had started preaching uh, to his people, who were tradesmen, most of them, in London, on Sunday nights, a series of sermons on the epistle to the Ephesians, and he more or less lost his congregation. Now, they all had the greatest possible respect for him and the greatest possible liking for him, but the fact was he, they couldn't take it. He was preaching over their heads. He wasn't feeding them. His intention was good, but his sermons were, as they put it, too deep for them, and the series was too long. They couldn't take this. So you've got to be careful about this. In other words, I come back to a thing I've already said, and I want to emphasize it. 
you've got to be constantly assessing yourself and your people. And you must always be ready to make readjustments. Don't go with this rigid set plan from which you don't vary. I heard of a foolish preacher preaching a, a series on a particular line which he'd come to believe he'd undergone a change in his thinking and in his outlook. And now he was preaching constantly on one line and on one theme. And somebody told him that he'd heard complaints of, from some of his people. And his reply to, uh, to them was, well, they've got to take it. They've got to take it, whether they like it or not. In a sense, I would justify him in saying that, but in the way he said it, I think it was quite wrong. The business of the preacher is to persuade them to take it, to teach them to take it, to wean them unto it, not to throw it at them. In, 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 a, in a wrong sense. So he must be constantly readjusting as he finds these conditions. This may sound to you difficult, and there's a sense in which it isn't, yet to me it is one of the great glories of the ministry. This is a part of this whole romance of it all. Uh, that you're, It's always living, it's never set, it's never formal. There's this constant interplay and reaction between the preacher and his people. And you grow and develop together and you have to make these adjustments because after all, what are you preaching for? What are you what are you doing? What are you trying to do? What's your object? It is, is it not to help these people and to bring them to God and to a knowledge of God and to build them up in our most holy faith? Very well. So be always ready to readjust. But again, I emphasize at the end of this section as I've been doing all along, Make absolutely certain that each particular sermon is complete in itself and is an entity in and of itself. This is even if you're when you're preaching a series. And the way to do that is in a few minutes at the beginning of the sermon to give a brief resume of what you've been saying. I emphasize the word brief. I remember hearing of a popular preacher, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't popular in the usual acceptation of that term, but a man who achieved a certain amount of notoriety in England a number of years ago, uh, very largely because of the depth of his voice, and he used to speak on the radio, and this gave him a transient popularity. But I remember hearing a lady uh, who uh, used to go and listen to this man, and she told me that she'd stopped going to listen to him. I said, well, what made you stop? Well, she said, you know, he spends so much time in telling us what he said last time, and then so much time in telling us what he hopes to say next time, that he told us very little this time. <laughs> and, uh, and this said, uh, so upset her that she'd actually stopped listening to him. And this is a very real snare. Uh, it's a temptation to the minister. Uh, even when your motives are good, you, you, there will be a tendency to, to overdo this summary of what's gone before. But it is essential to the people, uh, to all of them, even to those who are attending regularly, and if there should be a stranger, it's very vital for him. So you show the setting of this particular sermon in the series and its relationship to the whole, and perhaps throw out a hint what it's going to lead to. But it's an entity in and of itself. And that is a very vital rule. Very well. Well, now then, there is what I've called a kind of major decision. Having arrived at this major decision, you've now got to come down to the actual work of preparing your sermon, the particular sermon. How do you do this? Well, obviously, the first thing you've got to do is to deal with the meaning of your text. And the one thing that's demanded at this point, of course, is honesty. You've got to be honest with your text. I mean by that, that you don't go to a text just to pick out an idea which interests you. And then deal with that idea yourself. Now, this is to be dishonest with the text. Perhaps a few illustrations will help to make this point clear. Famous preacher, as well known in this country as in England, 
remember the first time I heard him on the radio. He told us that he was going to preach on turning the place of your crucifixion into a garden. One wondered, well, now, where does this come from? <laughs> well, he, he, um, he then, uh, after a little while, told us what his text was. And the text was, of course, that word in the, is it the beginning of the 18th chapter of John's Gospel, which says, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. That was what the text said. But you see, the sermon was on turning the place of your crucifixion into a garden. But there was nothing about that in the text. There was a garden there. The garden was there before the crucifixion. It wasn't the crucifixion that produced the garden. But you see, it gave him an opportunity to preach this very sentimental sermon about people suffering from illnesses. This was the crucifixion, their illness but they took it in such a beautiful spirit. They never grumbled and never complained. They turned it into a garden. And this and so on, and you can see it coming. And on it went, you see, for about 25 minutes to half an hour. Now, I, there's only one thing to say about that. This is just utter dishonesty. There's nothing else to say about it. It's dishonesty. Or take another one. A man preaching on... Nehemiah, the Syrian, and you remember the point uh, uh, about uh, his wanting to, uh, his objecting to going to dip himself uh, in Jordan, Barna and Parfer and so on, this objecting to having to dip himself in the Jordan. But the, the sermon was preached on this theme. The importance of the unimportant in life. Now, this is again another example of sheer dishonesty. The meaning of that text and its context is not to show the importance of the unimportant in life. The whole point here surely is that this man's got to be humbled. He's got to submit to God's way of salvation. That literally wasn't mentioned at all. But, you see, you just extract uh, an idea, a thing that pleases you, a thing you happen to believe in, the importance of the unimportant. And therefore you ignore the real statement of the text and its context, and you just use it, abuse it in this way, to bring out your idea. Or oh, let me give you another, still more striking one, and I'm giving you illustrations from very popular preachers. Um, this man was preaching on my gospel. His text was, of course, Paul to Timothy. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. But this was the sermon. Can you say my gospel? Of course, he said, it may not be mine, but it's yours. This was the point. Can you say my gospel? Then there was a tirade, you see, against traditionalism systematic theology, any kind of theology. The one thing that mattered was personal experience, my gospel. This was the whole point. Ignoring, you see, that what Paul was really saying there was this, that it wasn't his own gospel, not something that arose from his experience, but Jesus Christ of the seed of David, history, facts, resurrection, all these things, that was all completely denied. The great thing was, have you got an experience? Have you had an experience? Have you, got a ch have you had your life changed? My gospel. Doesn't matter if it's the other man's or not. They may be all contradictory. It doesn't matter. It's yours. It's mine. You're not merely repeating a shibboleth. You're not merely saying what other people have said and have told you to say. It really was a tirade against a theological understanding or being able to give a reason for the hope that is in you but simply an assertion of personal experience. Now, there's only one thing to say. This is utterly dishonest. It is an abuse of what the text is saying. We must really be honest with our texts. And we must um, take them always in their context, of course. This is the thing that's so vital.
these other men, they don't do that. They're not interested in that. All they're always looking for ideas. They want a theme, an idea, and then they philosophize on this or give their own thoughts or moralize on it. But this is, uh, this is utter, utterly to abuse the word of God. Abuse the word of God. Well, now then, you take your text in its context and you're honest with it. You discover the correct meaning of the words and of the whole statement. We've really gone into this, haven't we? But now, what I want to emphasize at this stage is, is the spiritual meaning. The spiritual meaning. Accuracy, all right, but uh, more important, the spiritual meaning. What determines the accuracy of your understanding of particular words, I think you'll find, is not scholarship ultimately, but the spiritual meaning of the passage you'll find the authorities will disagree with one another, blankly, completely. And the meaning ultimately has to be determined not by some exact science, but by spiritual perception, spiritual understanding. That unction that John talks about in his first epistle in the second chapter, the spiritual meaning. In other words, this leads you to the thrust and the message of this particular statement, verse, two or three verses, passage, whatever it may be. And of course, in order to arrive at this, you will have to learn how to ask questions of your texts. Nothing is more important than this. Ask questions. Why did he say that? Why did he say it in this particular way? What was he getting at? What was the object? What was the purpose? One of the first things one has to learn is to talk to texts. They talk to you, you talk to them. Put questions to them. And it's a most profitable procedure and a most wonderful procedure. But at the same time, never force, never force your text. You may get an idea and it may excite you and thrill you. But if you find that you've got to do some manipulating or forcing in order to make the whole statement fit into this, don't do it. You mustn't force it. And of course, at the same time or after this you begin to check this understanding you've arrived at by your lexicons and your commentaries and so on. But now this is the thing I'm leading to and the thing I'm concerned about. Make certain that you really are getting the main message, the main thrust and import of this particular text or statement. It's quite amazing how Good men can avoid doing this. Uh, I've reached a stage in which I'm not quite sure whether one learns more about preaching by preaching oneself or listening to others. I suppose it's a combination of both. But having been ill last year, I had to do a lot of listening, and I learned a great deal. I heard a man preaching on Galatians 3.1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. And the sermon we had was a sermon on the danger of being sidetracked. Introduction, which I felt was quite uh, allowable and legitimate on the sort of witching eye, and a little bit of a disquisition on mesmerism. All right, uh, I, I, I was quite prepared even for that. But uh, then, you see, we came to this, the whole, the point of his sermon was the things that tend to distract us. Now, I maintain, you see, that this was a man who was missing the main message. Surely what the apostle is saying is this, O oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. This is the thing that the Apostle is saying. He's amazed at these Galatians. And what is he amazed at? Well, what, he, what Paul was amazed at was that anything could distract the attention of these foolish Galatians from this thing which he had placarded before them. This was the thing. This glorious thing that he'd evidently set forth placarded before them, and which is so glorious and wonderful in itself. That was literally not mentioned in that sermon. It was the 
sideshows, the things that tend to distract us. But we were not told from what they distracted us. Surely Paul is especially expressing his utter amazement and astonishment that a man who's ever seen this could possibly want to look at anything else. Isn't that the thrust? It didn't come out. The man, in a sense, was saying nothing wrong, but it seemed to me that he was not bringing out the main thrust of, of his own text, the very text on which he was preaching. And I could give you many other examples of the same thing. Uh, in other words, I feel that it is important that we should be sure that we've got at the main thing and let it come out. Like another man preaching on Romans 1, 1 to 4. Declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of Holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Preaching that on Easter Sunday. But you know there was very little about the resurrection. The men went right through, told us everything and analyzed, gave us meanings of words and everything. But you went away not uh, astonished at this amazing event of the resurrection. This thing that finally declared him. That wasn't the thrust at all. But surely it is the thrust of what the apostle himself is saying. Or I remember a well-known preacher preaching on a good Friday morning. And he took as his text Romans 8.2 The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. And his theme was, you see, his particular brand of holiness. He was a believer in entire sanctification. But on a good Friday morning, when the very day was making people think of the actual death of our Lord, our minds were directed away from that to a particular theory of holiness. Well, we've got to leave it at this for today, but I'm emphasizing the importance of our arriving at the main thrust, the main message. Be honest, let it lead you, let it tell you, listen to it, and let that be the burden of your sermon. Tomorrow I hope to go on to consider how you actually work that out in detail. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.